Score, the podcast, is presented by Spitfire Audio. Score, the podcast. The only show taking you inside the studios of the world's most celebrated composers and musical storytellers. We're back, man. Oh, it's been a long, cold winter. Does that make you, like, kind of... Kind of Game of Thrones cold. Oh, yeah. Perfect timing. But in keeping with our incredible synchronicity, Game of Thrones is back. And in bigger news, Score Season 2 has returned. Finally. (laughs) We've been talking about it and planning, and uh, a lot has been going on behind the scenes. We also want to thank our uh, coordinator, Carol, who's uh, joined the team, and she's been kicking butt and helping us uh, get this off the ground. She may be our mother of dragons. Is that a stretch? <laughs> uh, I am your host, Kenny Holmes, with my co-host, Robert Kraft. Yep. And um, we actually have a special guest today, and Very it may sound special. weird that he's a special guest, because uh, joining us is Matt Schrader. Is that Mash hey. Raider? Mash Raider. Um, I am a special guest this time, yeah. Matt will not be joining the entire season. He's been very busy well you know what they say when you're big you're busy so matt has gone on to glamorous that's new right ventures but we wanted to have him on today for the season premiere because it's a big day um not only is this show premiering its season two episode but matt has a new project um that we've been working a little bit together on but he wrote and created and uh it's out today as well and it's called blockbuster so we're going to talk yeah. about that and uh let you hear the trailer and in fact go subscribe don't play it yet keep listening yeah but go go on over in your uh, podcast that way you don't forget app, look up blockbuster yeah the first episode Spielberg is out. and Lucas yeah and, and John Williams of course uh it's we'll talk more awesome. in just a minute i can tell you being a blockbuster. These guys have heard, I think, most or parts. Yeah, or it's fantastic. You may, I, I, I may even be uh, a couple voices That's in right. there. Oh, uh-huh. you mean, would that be the same voice of the song award winner, Kenny Holmes? <laughs> rumor has it. Did, did you just win a song for writing a song about meat? Okay. I, you have to explain this. I, I was posting about it. If you follow me on social media, uh, we had quite a campaign or a hampaign, as I was calling it. Oh, boy. Um, but there's a sports uh, morning show, the Dan Patrick Show, national show, and um, they did a contest covering famous songs and rewriting the lyrics about barbecuing. And uh, I submitted a song, and... Needless to say, I'm an award-winning meat composer. and uh, <laughs> Meet the composer. I want a Traeger barbecue grill, which I'm very excited about. And you guys... Uh, you could start a new podcast called Meet the Composer. Oh. God. A little spinoff series. I like that. Just thinking since we're launching podcasts and things. Nice. You know. And it could be all about BBQs. C-U-E-S. Oh. And followed by some BBQs as in questions. Uh, oh, nice. man. We need a kind of... All right. We're we definitely back. On. Yeah. What is happening <laughs> here? I'm derailing the first episode already. <laughs> Thanks, Thanks um, so much. A lot has happened since our uh, season finale last year with Lauren Balf. Um, the awards came out. Yeah. Um, kind of some crazy stuff happened there. Justin Hurwitz wins the Golden Globe, doesn't get nominated for an Oscar. It doesn't Amazing. happen very often, but... It has happened before. It happened to me. I oh. was nominated for a Golden Globe. May I simply share with our 
devoted audience for a song I co-wrote with Babyface. It was in the was it film? I'm trying to think. Anna and the King. It was in the film Anna and the King. Golden Globe nomination. I started to prepare my Oscar speech. I got my tux all ready. Oscars <laughs> were, nom- were announced. And no thank you, Robert Kraft. Uh, yeah, so it Is happens. there anything sadder than an Oscar speech that never is read? Well, my, both my dogs actually thought it was a great speech. Oh. So, you know, there well, was there that go. upside. So but something. it's kind of bittersweet for Justin, though, because you can't be that sad holding your Golden Globe and not getting... He won. That's the difference. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And it was um, a great score. And then, of course, Ludwig Göransson just completely dominating. Crushed. Wins the Oscar for best score, wins two Grammys, uh, one for best score, and one for best song, which I don't know if... Has that happened before? I wonder. I'm not sure. We he's have producing to go back to uh, our... Childish Gambino's music, so yep. he's a, a, a Grammy-winning hip-hop producer and the best score in the same night, which is just crazy. Um, yeah. Major success for Ludwig and... Yep. Are we looking at like a new school here of composers? I, you know what? It's interesting you mention it. We haven't talked about that particular topic, but I've been thinking how there's an old guard now that used to be the guard. Yeah. In other words, there was a whole crew, and they know who they are. The usual suspects. Usual suspects. It's like studio musicians, too. There were a whole wrecking crew, and then they were replaced with a certain era who played on all the records, and now they're new cats. Same with composers, and I think we're seeing a very interesting new The new group. class. we got yep. Ludwig, Justin Hurwitz, Nicholas Bratel, uh, Benjamin Walfish, who's having a huge year with uh, two, two uh, scores and movies coming out back-to-back with Hellboy and Shazam. And, yep. Um, he's crushing it. So Tamar Kali. Tamar Kali and, and Pinar. And I Pinar. mean, all, all these new faces popping up yep. and, and making major headlines. I'll tell you one year. other who I am really excited to hear and listen to his output, which is Michael Abels, who did Us mm. yeah. and Get Out. And I thought the score for Us was just incredible. I really loved it. I thought not only was the vocal stuff and the choral stuff cool, but that put five on it. Oh, well, what a great that idea to awesome. take a popular song yeah. and, and orchestrate it. And I'm sure that grabbed attention of people who never even thought about film music before, which is always a great sign when you're bringing in new audiences like that. It also brought Looney's back onto the charts with that song. Which is one of my favorite songs. Yeah, it was just Got a lot of play. So Michael's part of the new new crop, and uh, just a lot of young composers starting to... And it's interesting for all of you nascent composers, these names have not been unknown to the community for many years. They're just now getting their moments. They were assistants. They were arrangers. They were orchestrators. It's not Isn't like they Isn't Abel's just... like a high school he music was. teacher, yeah. too? So he really has kind of What a cool up. story. Yep. But some of the others, Benjamin Walfish, great arranger, Pinar, they were names that were known to the community, and they're now getting their real shots as the composer. Awesome. Uh, and... You like that awesome, Matt? Awesome. That was for you. Um, <laughs> I didn't even mention our our big guest for our season premiere. We're really excited to oh, finally yeah. get Bear McCreary on the show. And yeah. uh, Bear has a lot of stuff coming up, uh, including what he just announced. Listen to that crowd. They're going nuts. <laughs> after, we, after we recorded our episode with uh, our interview with Bear, just a couple of days ago, he put out this trailer that he's scoring the new Chucky 
Child's Play movie, and it's such a creative way to announce a composer, and you see all the great trailer. child musical instruments that he's using, and it's very creepy, and then and then you see Bear lit all dramatically. I thought, and it it's also great. cool because it's the uh, it's the film that's sharing that and kind of promoting the composer, yeah. which is uh, it seems like a rarity, but we do see that happen occasionally, and that's really cool with Bear. Because um, he makes everything fun, we uh, he's like great that. in that regard. We would like major motion picture studios and TV networks and platforms to start announcing each new project first with who's composing it. I think that's it more plays important. a major role. They should do that. More important, like than they're the announcing stars, an actor story, or anything. Exactly right. Um, so we're going to talk to Bear about uh, God of War, his huge video game domination i mean it's won every video game industry award and uh, also for the music Um, and also uh, next month he's got godzilla king of the monsters coming out which is really exciting so we'll talk to bear about that uh robert this friday that movie that movie's finally coming out that we we got a sneak peek at last year we had such uh for all of you who remember the score episode with Harry Gregson Williams. Episode two, I think. It was episode two. When we were in his studio, which must be eight, ten months ago, a year yeah. ago, he was in the middle of scoring a beautiful film called Penguins, which we got a chance to look at and listen to. And it comes out this Friday um, and couldn't be more on time, certainly with the new series that's on Netflix called Our Planet. Our Planet. Man, 4K... It's so amazing. It is amazing. I've seen many episodes listening to the wonderful score by Stephen Price, who will be our guest in the next few weeks. Oh. Ooh. Wait a second. Did you just drop something? I, Oops. I, oh. I, <laughs> oh, breaking great. news. I'm Stephen still getting Price. used to this board, Matt. you got to teach me a thing or what two. Was that? What was I that? I kind of like the first one, which was Stephen Price <laughs> Yeah, give us that Tinkerbell. Again? It was just a little heavenly. <laughs> But, Our planet uh, is beautiful. It is beautiful. Our planet is beautiful, and um, penguins I'm looking forward to. I think there are a couple others. This one's hard to pronounce, but I liked the trailer, La Llorona. Oh, it's a scary one. Scary one. I'm uh, looking forward to probably seeing that through my fingers because I cover my face <laughs> for, for many of those. But um, some good ones coming up and then we're into the summer season and there's going to be no- Oh, there's a ton of stuff coming up. Avengers is coming out yep. and Godzilla and we'll get to all of that throughout the season. So thanks for sticking with us. And uh, of course, be sure to tell a friend, share the podcast, rate and review, all that good stuff. Um, but let's get to it. Uh, we have Matt Schrader here in the studio. Oh. oh, let's get one more round of applause. Hey, another to... round, of, please, everyone. Let's, yeah. let's so come on. You're embarrassing let, let's me. do this um, before we start talking about blockbuster. Let's just uh, go ahead and give the audience a little thirty-second teaser trailer nice. to give them an idea. Oh, we have that. Oh, we do. Let's see if we have it. Let me see if I have that. Let's go to the videotape. <laughs> Here it is. This is the trailer for Blockbuster. Steven Spielberg and George Lucas. What about strange lands and escape from the everyday? It's brilliant, George. Before anyone knew them by name. Who's a good boy, Indiana? 400 grand? Let me explain it. George, that's our money. Blockbuster. Following the spectacular failures. Sir, Sir, are you all right? And the unexpected triumphs. Can you believe it? I told you, George. I told you. A six-part immersive audio series. Blockbuster. There it is. Yes. Wow. And it's out today. It's the out first today. episode. Yeah, it's called uh, Blockbuster, as you heard, and it's on uh, all podcast platforms. It's a it's a biopic. Um, a biopod. 
a, a biopod, maybe. Yeah, bio is that a thing? I guess it would be. Now it is. Um, yeah, and it follows Spielberg and Lucas and their their close mutual friend who becomes uh, who really kind of defines the whole era, John Williams. Yes. And, uh, there's a whole story. You heard a little John Williams. In there's there? like six months of research that went into this, and um, and it's it's a narrative. It's not documentary style. It's narrative style. So there's a a story that this follows, and uh, and found some things out about uh, about John Williams that I wasn't I didn't know, and that a lot of people didn't know. It's in the first episode about uh, kind of what what inadvertently led to uh, to a change in his musical thinking. That's um, so yeah. great. And that's the, the first yeah, episode. Man. He's the maestro of maestros. Thank you, Hathor, who's also joined us <laughs> for a minute. And um, he's actually one of those rare personalities who you don't know much about his life. So I'm looking forward, of course, to rehearing the f- episode one. Matt, is it the kind of thing where, like a Netflix binging show, I can... Yeah, Download well, everything it, at once. it will be, but no, we're releasing weekly right now. We're finishing mm-hmm. up some of the uh, some of the episodes now, but this is um, we we've tried to figure out what to call this because it's new to the podcast world a little bit. What we're doing, um, which is cool, also expensive, <laughs> uh, which we found out, but it's immersive audio. So we've gone through with our sound designer who who worked on score, or you know, a couple composers that wrote original music for all this, and it's just the most layered. Uh, podcast that that I've ever heard. That was kind of our our goal is to make something that is an experience that is you know a uh, a time capsule going back to the 1970s. You know when when all of this was just starting to happen when Hollywood was a very different place and no one knew what blockbuster meant uh, as a term. Really, it didn't really exist as a model yet. It's um, weird to think about that 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 wasn't. What you called big movies yeah. before, but now it's just like synonymous. With and there was kind of this dream; everyone wanted the big hit, you know, the big, the big hit or whatever. But it, the the model for that was kind of uh, engineered, I guess, by Spielberg and Lucas, who were at one point best friends in uh, as young filmmakers before they really hit it out of the park. So it's a cool story, and that was what kind of led to uh, to putting it all together. And they shared a composer. Yeah, yes. Uh, Stephen, intro- you'll hear that in the series, um, but Stephen introduces uh, George uh, to John, and uh, and they they kind of hit it off, and you'll be there for the, uh, the, the meetings and the spotting sessions and the scoring sessions, and um, it's, it's a really cool experience. And, I got to say, the, a lot of fun. The, from what I heard of it, um, the music really stood out to me, and at first I was like, Wow, you just this is John Williams music, but the the composers that you had come on this project did a, an amazing job of yeah. of creating the the John Williams like kind of put you into that world, but it's also like a new flavor to it and um are you going to release the soundtrack as well? Yeah, that's the plan. Uh Ryan Tobert who worked on score and Benjamin Botkin, um a uh, an orchestrator and composer worked together on this and that's what they did. They wrote some tunes. Um it's a theme-driven original score. So um it's a lot of music and it's uh it's it's fun to listen to also. Is there a, it's an, hummable. Is there an end title song? Blockbuster we're gone. You know what? Let's some we'll talk after this. After this. After this recording, we, and a, see if I we know can an award-winning songwriter here. <laughs> sounds like five pounds of cheese. <laughs> That's what it sounds like. <laughs> Meet the blockbuster. Can I ask you a question? Your recommendation for listening to immersive audio is it the kind of thing where it's best 
maybe in the dark alone with headphones <laughs> uh in, in the car in is the great car? in okay. the closet it's built because a lot closet. of people <laughs> <laughs> uh, what are you doing in, in there blanket it's blockbuster i'm seeing the blockbuster uh in, in, no, in the car is fort. best because we've we've built the stereo imaging uh peter Bavietz, who's just a great uh award-winning oh, yeah. sound designer he he built this whole thing so that it sounds great in the car and on headphones sounds pretty good coming from a phone or something too if you're going to play it but not not as immersive obviously so uh i'd recommend headphones i recommend listening in the car on 11 mm-hmm. <laughs> turn it up exactly what what like where did this idea come from you've been you've been you've been very quiet about this yeah uh we just we just kind of unveiled this a few days ago with the Hollywood Reporter uh, article that came out about this. But um, but it came from some research I was doing on a couple other projects. And um, some of this probably goes back to score. We had a big section in the movie about Spielberg and Williams. Not so much George Lucas directly involved, but yeah. um, but they did kind of all have this musical, this this idea of uh, of having films that are driven by music. And there was a renaissance that came about in the 70s as a result of that. And um, and that's, you know, we wanted to kind of explore where that came from in George and Stephen. And also then I found out these guys were best buds for a while. You know, they're they're flying to each other's, you know, little movies that are all falling apart. Everything's a disaster. <laughs> you know, it, Jaws is is famously a disaster. Star Wars is maybe an even bigger disaster. And no one has any faith in these things, you know. It comes out in Star Wars case. It comes out in thirty-two theaters on mm. opening day, and everyone's like, "Oh, this is going to be no one's going to come see this." I think Score came out in more theaters than yeah, Star I Wars. <laughs> I think it did too. Maybe it will have the same trajectory too. <laughs> yeah, the, the audience is getting there. It's and if so, we'll we'll see you on our daily television show May on the Network Score TV. Be oh. with you. Oh, very nice. nice. Well, uh, again, Blockbuster episode one Can't is wait. out now, so you can. Hit pause, go to your uh, podcast app, search Blockbuster, mm-hmm. and make All sure to word. subscribe because every week when they come out, it pops right into your Yeah, phone. every Tuesday. Uh, and and it's ready to go. Blockbuster, all one word. And uh, yeah, you can listen along with us. And uh, we got a whole website, social media, all that stuff if you want to follow along there too. Well, we're certainly going to miss you on uh, the season. Yeah. <laughs> I'll be in here and there. Good. Yeah, he might pop in. Yeah. Or maybe uh, you come on and talk about uh, – give us a, a blockbuster update as more right, episodes come Right, but if out. we yeah. do that, we're going to need clearly a private entrance to the studio because the paparazzi, once they hear about blockbuster and Matt becomes this yeah. kind of world-famous personality. You don't want all the shouting and camera bulbs and all that stuff. on the Kardashians this week. <laughs> <laughs> so we're going to need to get a private entrance. Do you have enough That's sunglasses? Right. To, to kind of go I could always use a few more. Yeah, yeah. good. Bigger ones. Nice. Okay. Well, it's very exciting. We're we're happy for the big release and uh best of luck with Blockbuster and I got to tell you I've I've listened to several episodes and not just cuz I know them. It kicks butt. You guys should check it out. Yeah. Um we are going to take a break and during the break we're going to play the extended trailer if you want to get a a better taste of uh Blockbuster. And before we get to Sparks and Shadow Studios with our guest this week, Bear McCreary, I want to make sure that we announce our winner of the nice. First Man soundtrack giveaway, of Ooh. course, signed by the composer, Justin Hurwitz, and uh, that baby won a Golden Globe. That's a pretty cool prize. Yeah. Our winner is Ryan Dorrell. Right. Ryan Dorrell. 
Congratulations, oh, Ryan. The crowd just loves you, Ryan. We're going to be reaching out to Ryan on Twitter. So, Ryan, if you're listening to this, uh, look for that DM. Congrats. Yeah. And uh, make sure to follow at Score the Podcast because we'll be giving away stuff throughout the season sporadically. Um, so you won't want to miss that. No. If, if you're not following, you can't win. And coming up after the break, we're joined by Bear McCreary inside his studios, yeah. Sparks and Shadows. And uh, we're going to take you into the break with the full trailer of Blockbuster. Yeah. Mm. Enjoy. It was a word once used to describe a massive bomb. But in 1975, Blockbuster would take on an even more explosive meaning. In the middle of an economic crisis, a war in Vietnam, and worries of a nuclear showdown with the Soviet Union, arrived a game changer in culture on the shoulders of two soon-to-be revolutionaries, Steven Spielberg and George Lucas. Their films were pure spectacle, a momentary escape from a world falling apart. This is a true story told in six episodes about two rebels armed with lights, cameras, and microphones. World builders rivals, and most of all, best friends, risking their careers, life savings, and their own health for a chance at triumph. I'm Matt Schrader, and this is a true story that transformed the movies, the mythology, and in turn, the entire world. This is Blockbuster. Subscribe for free on Apple Podcasts and all other platforms. Hey, SCORE fans, it's Robert Kraft. We're back to the show in 25 seconds. If you like what you're hearing, do us a quick favor. Rate and review the show on your favorite podcast platform. It just takes a second, and it helps the show grow. Hey, thanks. We're going back to the show right now. Welcome back to Score the Podcast. We're here inside Sparks and Shadows Studio. Love that name. For our season premiere and one of our biggest guests thus far on the show, Bear McCreary. Welcome to the show, Bear. Thanks for having me, you guys. Hey, Bear, right before we kicked this in, you and I had a conversation off screen. Is that where we are? Or off mic? Off ear. Off ear. Um, an off year, which is what we're all having. Um, <laughs> maybe not. You mentioned Wild Wild West. Was that it? Indeed, I did. And that was your first time being on a scoring stage? That was the first time I was ever on a scoring stage watching an orchestra play music to picture. Tell was... me how you ended up walking in that door and <laughs> yeah. Elmer was on the podium? Elmer Bernstein is on the podium. I had at that time... Uh, known him for several years. Um, I I ended up being, I, I guess, one of his last protégés. Um, mm. I met him when I was in high school and ended up working for him uh, and and doing some orchestration. And you know, he really he really took me under his wing um, in the last uh, decade of his life. Um, but that was the first time I uh, I got to go see him 
uh, record something of, of that scale. Was it here in yeah, LA? Yeah, it, it was right down the street at Sony. Oh, I mean, it wow. was like a mile from where we are right now. Right, perfect. I could walk there from my house. But at the time, it was it was Valhalla for me. It was heaven, you know, to be able to go and uh, and experience that. And was watch. it a big band? Ginormous. I mean, oh. it was you know in the old school style of having the. Uh, the rock and roll rhythm section record the same day with the orchestra. There's no overdubs or anything, right. you know? Um, so in the main title, he had Hammond B3, mm-hmm. bass, drum kit, um, guitars, and, and at least a 90-piece orchestra out there. And, um, and I remember this feeling that I had, which I, 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 I use it to empathize with, with filmmakers that come and watch me work now because I was so blown away by the first take. I, I mean, I just had chills. I was amazed. I was like thinking, this is it. We're done. And then Elmer gives some notes and he goes, he does it again. And I think, oh, okay. Well, good to get a safety, right? Then he does it again. And, and as far as my ear can tell, this is done. You could put this in the movie. You could put it on a record. It's brilliant. And he does it again and again and again. And over the course of the week that I was there, I was there all week, just sitting on a couch in the back, watching him work, um, I started eventually to hear what he was hearing, to hear the things that that he was saying to them, to pick up on the little nuances that he was dialing in. And whenever I work with a filmmaker now who has not um, seen an orchestra, I, I tell them this story so that I, 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 I empathize with them. I understand that it can be seen sort of alien after a while. Um, when you you do the takes over and over again, and there's a threshold beyond which I think a, a, a non trained musician they're unable to hear what it is that you're 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 trying to catch. You know these small, uh, small intonation issues or small timing issues. You know things like that. But they are things that need to be uh, ironed out for the final recording. You I know? absolutely love that because it is the nature of critical listening mm-hmm. that you learn continually learn and i think we've all had that experience of not knowing enough initially in your career to know oh that you think that take is cool and either a producer yeah or an executive who's been doing it before you says something like you know the bridge um you guys weren't locked yeah and you think but it sounds great. What are you talking about? Yeah, right. That was a cool take. And then, of course, 10 years later, you're saying, let's lock this up, or yeah. you're out of tune in Measure 32. That's so wonderful that I haven't thought about why the filmmakers don't understand it. But, of course, our ears are t- yeah. just... Were you aware that they were sight-reading at that time? I-, I was. I mean, at that point, I had um, I had, had a lot of experience doing my own... Um, projects with very small ensembles i mean but you wrote your i mean i love that story you'd written your own movie to score yeah exactly that's the best startup story ever you didn't take other material you know i'm going to storyboard an entire film so i have something (laughs) to score it just really shows initiative well initiative or a a a midlife crisis at 15 you know that's great because i teenage yeah a quarter life crisis because i at that time i i Perhaps it's just my my focus, but I had realized when I was 14 or 15 that without a doubt, this is what I want to do with my life. And if I couldn't do it, I needed to know now. But you were in the, if you'll forgive me, you were in the bosom of the grunge, funk, rock 
Robert Bellingham, Washington. I, I, mean, I knew Kurt Cobain's little brother. I he mean, went for to the you other to high go school. to film school, and why weren't you in a garage in a plaid shirt Do at that moment? <laughs> want, I'd like to know. This is funny because you are right. I grew up in the like golden age of grunge in the Pacific Northwest. Um, I listened only to film music. I don't mean that um, I listened mostly. I listened only to film music. I did not listen to anything with a guitar, bass, or drum kit at all until I was 14. How does that even happen where you're living? That's so cool. It's just what I grew up being obsessed about. So for me, I didn't even know who Kurt Cobain was. It was Jerry Goldsmith. Yeah. And then what happened was there were two things. Um, and, and they're still my passions today. I realized that my favorite film composer, Danny Elfman, had a band. So Tough. I was like, oh, I'm going to check out these Oingo Boingo records. And, and at first when I – I remember the first time I got um, uh, Boingo, the 94 record, which I still adore. And it starts off with these ominous trombones. And I'm like, oh, awesome. This sounds like Batman. And then the band comes in and I was like, wait, what? There's, this is – oh, wait, this is a band? And it, like it took me a minute to wrap my head around. Um, and uh, the other one that did it for me was um, Queen's songs in Highlander, actually. And, hmm. and, and that's when I went like, oh, what, what's up with this band? And it was, it was Queen and Oingo Boingo that actually kind of broke the door open. And I went, oh, there's pop music that, that I like. That, that's, that's, it is so bass backwards. It's unbelievable. Isn't it crazy? Every other composer on the planet is listening to bands and then kind of finds right. film music. So what's funny, right? When I say you go the other way, I, in. I've played in rock bands. I've I've ended up I played. Uh, I mean, my brother and I did a Freddie Mercury tribute show a couple of years ago. We <laughs> I, I, when um, Johnny Vatos reunited Oingo Boingo. Um, my brother is the lead singer. I was the MD. So I've played with all the Boingo guys. Wow. But it, you're right. It is completely backwards because I. Um, I was interested only in film music, and it was sort of like a byproduct of that that I that I started listening to anything else. Now, of course, to circle back to your point, right? Had I been paying attention at the time, I mean, it's like I, I could have driven, I could have gotten in a car with my buddies and driven a, like fifty miles and seen Nirvana play. And only now, looking back, and and especially as my tastes in rock and roll have have evolved. I, I adore music from the time that I was in high school, but it's definitely not nostalgia because I wasn't listening to it in high school. Are your parents musicians? What, what, what drew you to film music? Um, my, my, there's a lot of music in my family. My grandparents on my dad's side were professional music teachers. Hmm. Um, my mom uh, played a lot of music for me, but there, no, there were no professional like musicians in my family in any sort of immediate sense. Because um, normally a kid that's drawn to classical music or the the orchestra has like the the parent that says you must do oh, your no I surprised my piano parents. lessons I, I remember watching um, some movie when I was in um, it was probably it was I mean it was probably Beetlejuice um, hmm. it was like I was watching it on video with my mom probably would have been like you know at that point eighty eight eighty nine and um, it had just started. And I remember this look on my mom's face because I turned and I looked at her in the first 10 seconds of the movie. And I go, Danny Elfman wrote this music. (laughs) And as the credit came up 30 seconds later, I remember her looking at me like, what is wrong with you? How (laughs) did you know that? And it doesn't seem like that big a deal to me now. But but as I've become a parent and I've started watching this evolve in my own daughter, you you realize like – 
that is a person who's really paying attention, especially yes. in the era before IMDb. You can't look it up. You, you, you just need to have remembered that name from the last time you saw the, a movie. Right. And that was me when I was growing up. I would, um, I would go see a movie. I saw, I saw The Shadow four nights in a row. Okay, it took me actually fifth. The, it was like the fourth night that I realized I didn't like the movie. I just loved the Goldsmith score. Oh, wow. And I would walk out of the theater and my friends are like, eh, that was okay. And I'm like, you guys, did you hear that synth thing that Jerry Goldsmith did in the beginning? And then the way he like used the villain theme at the end, but it was like, you know, I'm going on and on and on. And they don't even know what I'm talking about, you know? <laughs> But that's the 10,000 hours. I mean, you're the perfect example of that Malcolm Gladwell thing where you were into it and and focused in a way that it's hard to explain to non-composers. There's not a lot of people that decided like 26 years old, hey, you know, yeah, which a lot of rock stars do these days. They yes. say, well, this isn't working out for me. I mean, the good news for you is here you've had this magnificent career and you're having one. If you had gone the grunge route, You'd be maybe upstairs in Reseda in a Pro- fifth floor probably. walk Probably. Probably. Waiting I mean, for the phone to ring. In many ways. What an amazing thing. Yeah. I, 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 was, um, I, I was and remain sort of obsessed with it. It's all I've ever wanted to do. When I, was, when I was five, I knew it was pretty much what I wanted to do. And when I was 14 is when I sort of took everything else and went like, yeah, I'm not doing that. It's definitely this. What was it at five? Do you remember? Um, I'll tell you another story. So- when I was five, I saw Back to the Future, and I made my mom go back, bring me again. This time, I had a little, <laughs> I had a little Fisher Price cassette recorder because oh, I didn't that. know you could buy a soundtrack, and I held it up to record the music. And as the <laughs> audience were like laughing at the movie, I would be scowling because I'm thinking, "No, stop it! Be quiet! I want to hear this." And then the dialogue would get in the way, but I would be able. Then I would go home and listen to the cassette tape that I had made of this music because I loved it so much. And then it was about that time that I discovered at a, at a record store, you could see a soundtrack, which didn't have that pesky dialogue. The annoying you, sound effects are gone. That you know. terrible movie attached to it. <laughs> have you had well, the opportunity the to say to Danny or to Sylvester, I'm certain to Elmer, that thank you? Or, th- or you were a to, big part to, of it? To varying degrees, I have. And I know they hear that a lot. Um, Elmer, I think, obviously more than anybody else, I, I, I really got to know him, and um, he knows what that meant to me. And, and in many ways, his influence on me uh, is far more profound on a personal level than on a musical level. That's great. I've met Danny Elfman a few times. Um, I, I don't know if I've communicated to him what his music means to me. Was it a fanboy moment, or did you kind of just play it cool? I played it cool, but I mean, he knows, man. You know, <laughs> he knows. No, I'll tell you a funny story, right? So... Um, I snuck past security at the USC Film School nice. because Basil Polidorus was speaking Rest at a in screening. Uh, indeed, he was speaking at a screening of Starship Troopers, hmm. and it was for film students only. And I'm a music student, um, and uh, I waited till the movie was halfway done and could see like one of the one of the like people that were taking the tickets went to the went to the bathroom, and I snuck in and stood in the back so I could go up and talk to him, and then. Um, a couple of years later, he was doing this. He was part of this big event down in Costa Mesa where they were getting a bunch of film composers together. Elmer was there, mm-hmm. and they were recruiting a choir from uh, USC, to, and he was going to conduct Red October. Now, I have never sung in a choir, oh. <laughs> but, but I joined that choir because I was like, 
Basil's getting Lemon tea or getting... Well, exactly. And of course, then I end up singing... I'm on the first tenor part, which is like ludicrously high. And it turns out I could kind of do it. But it gave me a second chance to go up to Basil and say, hey, look, I got to tell you, only reason I'm even doing this is just to shake your hand and say, thank you for everything you've done. Um, I was able to... I met Jerry Goldsmith. I... I, You know, his, his... his service was uh, when he passed away um, was was open to the public, and I was there. And I just think, you know, I'll be able to tell my grandkids one day, like, yeah, I, I love was- this. You're carrying the message in many ways. You are you are a bridge between just Elmer and Jerry. Even the, I mean, I for those of you that can't see, which is everyone <laughs> listening to the podcast, there are the names of some of our greatest composers here in Bear Studio identifying each room yeah all my rooms are that have passed are they're named after the composers that have passed we shirley walker jerry goldsmith elmer bernstein yeah bernard herman Herman. and um and uh in the next studio we'll have to make room for a james horner room sadly you're right um but you know i do feel this very profound connection to um the past to all the people that came before me and inspired me and as we were talking before this i was invited uh, at at a very early point in my career. Um, Shirley Walker's family invited me to her memorial at the Warner Brothers stage. And I just felt this profound sense of sadness in that she was gone. But I also thought, what an honor to be there, to see all these Absolutely. people that she worked with. And, and, and I just felt I was a basically a I mean, I want to say a fan, although I feel like I've done more than a typical fan to honor her legacy because mm. I've, I've dedicated records to her and I've spoken very publicly about how much she's influenced me. And, um, and that's sort of a, a, a amazing to me when I think um, that, uh, you know, Elmer's teacher was Aaron Copeland and he taught me. I mean, that, that, it, that is a, one of the greatest traditions in teaching, which is that you are the student of someone who had a great teacher. So you are indirectly. Can we, Aaron go, can we talk about that a little bit? Sure. Your bio mentioned that, you met Elmer yeah, on I a wanna, boat dock. Can yeah. you explain? <laughs> There's a karmic happened? connection here. That's yeah, so fabulous. I grew up in Bellingham, Washington. Right, and home uh, of great composers. That's what they, they in, say. That indeed, they all yes. spend their it's time. The, in. It's the Austria, the Vienna of <laughs> exactly. uh, of the Pacific Northwest. Yeah. Uh, yeah, there is no entertainment industry there to speak of, and um, I was the um, when I was a junior in high school. I was. Um, voted uh the, the the because of my gpa i was like the rotary club student of the month nice. random month which is a thing you get to stick on your resume yep and uh so i went to the rotary club and they did a little presentation this is bear mccreary he wants to study film music he's thinking about going to usc um which in the very cursory sort of research i had done where does one go that was the first place that came up hmm. And after what was a very dry sort of ceremony, even as a even as a high schooler, I was like, "Please take me back to English class. I, I, I this this is too boring." This guy comes up to me, introduces himself. His name is Joe Coons. He um, he and his wife get a get a signed CD to this day. Hmm. Um, but he comes up to me and he says, um, "You know, I've got a friend um, who uh, who works in the business because I run the local um, boat association, and he keeps a boat here." <laughs> um, and I'm even then you guys, I'm, I'm not kidding. Like I, I had this kind of attitude cause I was like, I know it's going to be somebody who writes like the local weather report theme jingle, <laughs> or it's going to be someone who does like a soap opera out of Seattle or like writes the music for Bill Nye or like any of these things that are like kind of cool, but like not where I want to be. Right. 
And I'm like, yeah, sure, man, whatever. And he goes, have you heard of Elmer Bernstein? <laughs> okay. <laughs> like, I, my jaw hits the floor, right? I mean, Elmer's music is um, profoundly important to me at this point in my, in my life. And uh, I go, yeah, yeah, I have. So I, um, I made a cassette tape of some of the stuff that I had um, been working on at that time, which included some music that I'd done for my high school jazz band, some random pieces I'd written, and cues from this imaginary movie that I was working on at that point. I was, I was about 30 pages in. You know, I'd written about 25 minutes of music. Um, all mo- Most of this is realized on my Yamaha PSR 510 consumer crappy keyboard. Um, Did it have different sounds or just... No, it did. Could you overdub? Oh, yeah. Oh, so you could make multi-track. And in fact, I had just gotten, at the time, it blew my mind with, um, it was like Windows 3 something. Windows, it was a program called... 3.1 or something? Yes. It was a program called Master Tracks, which actually allowed, it, it, as primitive as it was, it's the same thing we use today. Sure. You know, in principle. And I just also, less RAM. Exactly. Well, there is no RAM. It's, <laughs> it's MIDI only. And uh, so the files are like, you know, I mean, you could fit you could fit my entire film score on a floppy disk for live audio. I used a Tascam four track. Right on. And I would, you know, you know, the tricks yeah. of just layering and layering and layering to get live players. I'd have my friends come over into my bedroom and record stuff. I got a little effects processor. It was extremely primitive. Now, with all that said. Joe sent this to Elmer, mm-hmm. and I would find out later, Elmer would get sent tapes all the time. They would go straight in the trash. Sure. He does not listen to them. He's busy. And, um, but, but, but from Joe... Joe had the hookup, though. Joe said, you got to check this guy out. And clearly, he and Joe were social, and he goes, sure. And, um, and he agreed to meet with me. So the next time he came up on his boat, which, guys, just think about the cosmic significance here. Every summer, Elmer would sail up to Alaska and back. So he kept his boat in the furthest north uh, port town on the Pacific in America. That's Bellingham, Washington. And the guy who runs the boat club was in the Rotary Rotary Club, you know, (laughs) the day that I did the the thing. Um, And, um, you know, I met Elmer and, uh, and, I'll never forget that day. I mean, my, my mom went and got me a brand new suit that barely fit. And you could tell I'd never worn it before. And Elmer comes to the door and his, you know, he always wore these like pig sweaters and like moccasins. And he just, I remember he kind of laughed. I mean, he laughed at me when he saw me and just, there was some comment of like, well, once you get to Hollywood, you don't need to, you don't need to dress up. But, <laughs> but I mean, I, I think also, you know, you know, and, and he, and he said to me like that he, it was a thing he, he said constantly about my music later on he said it just had a lot of personality he he said it had a lot of personality and then he said um you know have you studied harmony no theory no counterpoint no music history no orchestration no i take piano lessons i'm in my high school jazz band and i play and i'm like i've got a couple like rock bands with my friends and i just do this all the time and what was interesting is that he he basically said look you got to be this high to get on the ride Okay, you got to know these things. Now, here's another funny thing, right? Robert, you know this better than anybody. He was wrong. He was wrong because this was 1996. Things were changing. Yeah. If I had met with Hans Zimmer, would Hans Zimmer have told me I need to know all that stuff? The exact opposite. Probably the exact not, yeah. opposite. But this is in line with and, – and I liked Hans's music. And, I, and obviously my hero is Danny Elfman. He's emerging from this new school. But – 
Jerry Goldsmith, John Williams, Elmer Bernstein, Bernard Herman, Nino Rota. This is these are these are my heroes. So I get to meet one of my heroes who says, "Look, in order to be like me, you have to you have to know all these things." So I I said, "Okay, I'm going to go learn all those things." Um, and uh, I applied to the USC Music School. Elmer wrote me a letter to Thornton. It wasn't even Thornton yet. It became say- it became Thornton when I was there. And was there a film music track? Yes, there was. And this it, it historically is very complicated because at that time uh, they let in four undergrads a year, and it was a graduate program. So it was in short, I applied for that, and 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 I eventually got in. But it meant that what you do is you take an altered version of the regular composition program, and then your last year you are one of the four undergrads that that take this certificate like graduate certificate as an undergrad. Long story short, I would end up doing that, getting a full degree in composition. I took all the classes and a minor in recording arts, and I stayed there five years. Um, and Elmer was instrumental in, in the USC application, or did he? Elmer, Elmer, I, I believe, helped immensely getting me into the music school. Yeah. I still had to get into the school on my own, and I had to get at least a half tuition scholarship, or this is a non-starter. And and I was able to do those with the help of my mom doing Amazing. everything that you got to do to fill out the forms and, and present it. And, you know, Elmer had was not able to help with that. Um, so and, I was going to say, so fast forward, Battlestar Galactica, you you get how do you get brought onto this project? And, and I know that this was right around the time that we lost Elmer. Yes, um, <laughs> I um, well, I'll tell you the. Um, so I worked for Elmer off and on during the um, last sort of decade of his life. I um, I, uh, I organized at uh, his Pearl Street office all of the boxes of scores that are now in the USC collection. They mm. were just – they were completely loose. Mm. Um, I'll go back to that story later. That's a good story. Um, I house sat his dogs at, up at his estate in Santa Barbara when he was gone one summer and he gave me a movie to orchestrate. While I'm there, like, hey, do you want to come, you know, just like give the dogs their medicine and here's an old movie from the 60s that was lost and I'm going to re-record it. Oh, And in the last session in his life, he re-recorded it, Kings of the Sun, this old Yul Brynner movie. But I mean, imagine as a young composer saying, having somebody like Elmer Bernstein say, stay in my house. Here are my handwritten pencil sketches. I want you to extract from this the orchestral score. And when I come back, I'll sit down and tell you what you did wrong. Oh, my God. <laughs> There's some homework. I mean, really. And and I'll pay you for it. I mean, it was just oh, – it was amazing. Wow. Um, but anyway, <clears throat> the reason I bring all that up is I learned, as I said before, a lot about life. He, he was, a, he was a, a beacon for me musically but especially personally. I was really struggling at the time wondering, you know, if, if musicians and artists had to be miserable – if, if they had to die young. I mean, I was haunted by learning about um, the fates of Gershwin and Ravel and Beethoven and Janis Joplin and Kurt Cobain when that happened. I mean, you go on and on and on. And it's, it, you know, musicians are like a, it's like a litany of tragedies. Yes. 27 I, Club. <clears throat> indeed. Then I meet Elmer, who at that time in his, his, in his mid-70s, he is um, revered by his peers. He has a wonderful family. He... He he has everything that I I, I think that's that's what I want to be hmm. when I'm in my seventies. That that it's it's possible, you know. Hmm. So he had this profound impact on me. 
Um, there is one thing that I can tell you I did not learn from him at all, which is what is an emerging film composer in 2001 going to face when they enter the business? Mm. Because Elmer's not dealing with any of that. Not at all. I mean, he's he's making movies with Martin Scorsese, and he's also very proudly doing it his way, more so than almost anyone else could. And as you guys probably know, he had more music thrown out than any composer of his stature. It's astonishing in the 90s how many times his music was tossed out. And it was tossed out for one reason. He wouldn't do mock-ups. You could hire him. Oh, so they'd hear it for the first time. Exactly. But, but, and, and anybody else that tried that at his age, it's really, it was like him, John Williams and Jerry Goldsmith were the only ones famous enough. He had to, earned that ability. He'd earned it. Yeah. But it also means he, but he also was confident enough to say, look, this is how I do things. And I'm not going to change because of the, the, the winds of technology are moving in this direction. You can hire me and you can fire me, but I'm not going to like, Love change that. how it's done. Yep. All right, but even all right as a as a as a young adult, as a teenager watching this, I knew it's like oh, that's not going to be me. Uh, <clears> good because I was thinking, you know, it would be mean? nice if on your first score you walked in and said, "Hey, man, <laughs> you can hire me and fire me." Yeah, right. Yeah, well, the, I, guess way, which one they would choose. Right. <laughs> this is the way the queue goes. All right. So, long story short, right? Um, when I get out of college, I end up um, assisting uh, a composer named Richard Gibbs, who mm-hmm. is very much more. Uh, a typical of a working of a working guy at this time, um, and that's really where I learned a lot about the gear, dealing with music editors, dealing with spotting sessions, just like the the, the minutia of how stuff gets done on a practical level, how the business actually works when you're not Elmer Bernstein. Right. So that was a long-winded way, Kenny, of getting to your question. No problem. Richard Gibbs is hired to score the Battlestar Galactica miniseries. I write additional music on that. And when it goes to series, um, Richard and Richard is brought on for a couple episodes and then he left to go do other features and the producers in a pinch, let me do one episode while I looked for somebody else. That, that one episode turned into two, turned into 75 hours. Yeah. Wow. Um, and let me just, let me just wrap this story up because I think they are related and we can talk about Battlestar and all that other stuff, but I, I love talking about this. So, um, one of the reasons that I worked for Richard is that uh, Elmer didn't have as much stuff going on at that time. Hmm. And, um, and uh, there was a year when I didn't, I didn't really talk with him all that much. Um, and I was, you know, I was sort of, um, I was young and very naive. And, uh, and also just, I just dove right into working on all these movies and TV shows with Richard. It was, it was awesome. You yeah. know, it just, I just wasn't paying attention. Um, and, uh, and Elmer knew that uh, I was writing additional music on this miniseries, Battlestar Galactica. And then in the summer of 2004, um, he called me up about something. I, I don't even remember what. But we, we spoke and he asked how my mom was. And, um, and at that exact time, uh, I had done two episodes of Battlestar working with Richard. Richard had just left. And um, it was looking like they were going to let me come in and spot – the third episode produced, which happens to be for any Battlestar fans out there, the first episode of the show because we dubbed out of order. The first episode is called Thirty Three. It's it's a it's a good one. So it was about to be official, you know, like that. It was like I'm going to get my name on at least one episode of this show, <clears throat> but I didn't want to jinx it, you know. Um, so I didn't I didn't tell him. 
I didn't tell him um, that this was looking very likely. Um, so uh, a couple of days later, um, <clears throat> it, it ends up happening. I, we spot the show. And um, the next day I, I get up and it's and I, I shut off my phone. I, I, I shut off my um, all my email and everything. And I go, look, today's the day, man. This is the day, the, the first day I'm going to write music that's going to go out into the world with my name on it. It's on a, it's on a TV show that I, I know in my heart of hearts is going to change things. You know, I just know this is it. And, uh, I wrote a cue that's on the soundtrack album called, uh, the Olympic carrier, uh, in the first episode, it's this big dramatic moment. It's big six minute sequence spent all day on it. I'm in heaven. Um, so I, I, I turn my phone back on at like seven o'clock at night. I have 15 voicemails. Because Elmer Bernstein passed away that day. Oh, man. That's really incredible. Yeah. So I never got to tell him. And, uh, and, um, he knows. I, I, I like to think that, you know, and I still, <clears throat> I, uh, I still keep in touch with his family. Uh, I was just talking with his daughter, Emily, the other day. And, you know, she, as, and, and his, his widow and his former assistants, everybody, you know, and his son, Peter, who's wonderful. Hey, Peter, is, it's curious how, um, first of all, it's an amazing story and also kind of expresses the amount of magic that's around your Elmer Bernstein <laughs> relationship in every way. Truly. There's nothing about it that isn't absolutely out of a storybook. I know. From, and that it's something from Bellingham you, to Battlestar. It's kind of poetic, too, because it, it was is. like the moment that you were pushing out into this world of film music and you were ready yeah. and his job was done or it, it, something. It, 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 uh, yeah. It, it's, it's the sort of thing that if you, you read it in a script, you'd say to the writer, like, come on, man. Yeah, it's too corny. You can't corny. do that. But, um, um, you oh know, my it, God. It, it, it had a profound impact on me. And, and obviously one of the other many lessons that I've learned from then is uh, uh, don't withhold good news. Just don't, don't worry about jinxing it. If you got something to share, just, interesting. just just share takeaway. It, and you know? I didn't know how this story ended. And I was going forward anticipating all the things that the errors that I've made of not sharing something and then turning out I should have shared it because, yeah. and, you know, well, they knew somebody else who was up for the gig. And if they'd known that you were doing it and I wish you'd told me and all those other things, yeah. I never anticipated that the end was. Wow. Yeah. One person that would be the proudest. Yeah. Is that something you think about all the time? Yeah. Just not, I, not him. Not. I don't think there's anything wrong with it. I think it's beautiful. Yeah. And I no, think it's beautiful that your phone was off in a way so that you just think if. If my phone was on, it wouldn't have kept him alive. I just wouldn't have written my music that day. And, you know, it, who knows if you would have written the best music because you might have been. Yeah. Sad, distracted, phone ringing. I know. There was some poetry to all yeah. of it. Wow. And, and, and in many ways, uh, it, 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 you know, what, what became of that music that I wrote was, was beyond even my wildest dreams. I mean, that, that show opened doors for me in ways that It was that are, Elmer sprinkling fairy dust yeah, on man. all of it. It, it really it, was. It, yeah. I think the reason just for composer fans out there that I asked way back uh, the size of the band mm -hmm. is that I learned that Elmer's score <clears throat> on Mockingbird... I think it's 21 pieces. It's small. And for, yeah. you know, the, I always thought, well, you need 90 pieces or you need a big band. You need a choir in the back. Plus, you're going to have to do a Tycho drum overdub to make <laughs> things really rock. 21 pieces. Yeah. Nailed it. Yeah. 
and he was the author of one of those kinds of scores. Jerry, too, with Chinatown. Yeah. Where you could make strange, you know, it always amazed me. The masters could come in and configure strange size Absolutely. bands and make it work. We're, gonna, we're actually going to touch on that in the next block. We're oh, going to take a quick break. Thank you. Get some Kleenex, take a breather. Yeah, that was yeah man, that's kind of... More with uh, Bear McCreary Love when we come that. back. Thanks. Hey, Score fans, it's Kenny Holmes. We're back to the show in just a second. Just a quick reminder, be sure to follow us on Twitter, at ScoreThePodcast. We post a lot of behind-the-scenes videos, and we'll also keep you up to date on who our next guest is. So make sure to go over and follow us now. Back to the show. Welcome back to Sparks and Shadows. I'm having such a good time today. I I think one cautionary tale was shared in the beginning of this, which is for all of you perspiring composers out there, Bear has told us a story about going to the Rotary Club. And for all of your hard work, just remember nothing replaces great luck and <laughs> timing. True. Yeah, go and check in with your harbor master. I mean, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> just, just make sure they don't that know is, John Williams or something. It's just writ large how, uh, and I can't imagine any career, including some of those at this table, that being at Whole Foods one afternoon at the right time or going to some favorite park to walk your dog runs you into somebody mm-hmm. who says, hey man, um, it's good to see you. And as they say in Hollywood, shit happens. And to, I, but I think the best one I've heard in a while is at the Harbor Master in yeah. Birmingham, Washington. We didn't even get to do your proper introduction because you've since the Harbor Master, <laughs> you've gone on to do amazing yeah. work. He's an Emmy-winning composer uh, for shows like The Walking Dead, Outlander, Battlestar Galactica, Agents of Shield, Black Sails, which we feature your theme in the score documentary that you're playing on the hurdy gurdy there. Uh, also. Uh, a big movie on the way, Godzilla, King of the Monsters. Huge. He mm. did 10 Cloverfield Lane and then uh, Happy Death Day and To You in mm-hmm. a sequel. Yep. <clears throat> I want to talk to you about uh, God of War, though. Yeah. Uh, you're coming off a huge year. In fact, we were trying to get you on the podcast last year, and I know you were right in the middle of God of War. Um, one of the biggest video games of all time, highest rated at that. It's it's up there. Um, yeah. It has a very interesting sound. It's a big orchestral Nordic instruments mm. and the the really prominent deep male <laughs> yeah. choir. Yeah, um, I think I have a clip here. <clears throat> what what goes into researching a score like this? Because there's a lot of historical elements to it. Um, even the the lyrics are written in Old Norse. Yeah, um, is McCreary a Norse name? Are you a Viking at heart? No, it's <laughs> uh, it is Scotch Irish. Yeah, okay, so that's. <clears throat> How do no, you, like, I'm, I'm, where, what's your starting point? You, you, they bring you into this meeting. I read a little bit about your meeting. Yeah, they didn't quite tell you what you were doing, and right immediately you're like, "Is this a new God of War?" Yeah, the the signs were there, uh, especially when they asked about choirs and percussion and then mythology. Um, but you know, doing doing extensive research is is what's fun for me. I, I, I am drawn to projects that will force me to learn something I don't know already. Mm. So I knew nothing about Tycho drums when I started Battlestar Galactica. I knew nothing about Nordic folk music um, when I started God of War. Um, so I just do a deep dive. I, I, I research the way the music is used. I, I obviously listen to tons of it. Mm. Um, I try to draw from it some essence that I can preserve um, 
and I want to do that honorably. Yet at the same time, it's inevitable that all the rules I'm learning are are up for to, are up to be broken. Yeah. If, if the dramatic needs uh, require it. Um, so uh, in in the case of God of War, it was actually I think the biggest challenge for me was. Um, I, I, I score a show called uh, Outlander where mm-hmm. yep. I get to indulge all of my fantasies of using bagpipes and Scottish music, right on. Uh, which I love. I love it. What's interesting about Nordic folk music is that that's where a lot of that stuff comes from. Because there's a relationship between... A direct relationship. Yeah. And what it means is to the casual listener, something that is purely Nordic can really feel like it's Celtic. Yeah. And I wanted to avoid that at all costs, partly just to prevent confusion, but also personally, I've, I've explored that sound so much. So I was looking for, for ways of differentiating from some of the stuff that became more um, uh, Celtic in mm. the way it signified uh, um, where it was coming from. And um, so I, I was listening to um, some of the more unusual instruments, the the Hardinger fiddle or the, the nickel harpa, which is this really cool – um, instrument that is did not translate at all into any sort of Western or um, uh, Celtic. These version. are Nordic instruments. Yeah, these Hardinger fiddle. The Hardinger fiddle is is essentially like a, a violin with a built-in reverb that comes from these resonating strings. Yeah, and to be to be fair, like when it's recorded, it really does. It, it doesn't. It does sound a lot like a regular violin. The nickel harpa is like an alien. I, I love it. It's um, <laughs> is that a harp? No, it's like a hurdy gurdy. It's hmm. it's like this sort of boxed thing with all these strings, and you and you you bow it, and and it has these sort of um, keys to play. Um, it's very strange. Uh, do you, it, do they exist in the world? You have oh, to yeah. find one or not? Well, I, I I spent some time trying to find a player that has that specializes in one. And couldn't find the right fit. I mm. found players that could read that weren't amazing. And I found players that could improvise like crazy and couldn't read at all. Mm. What I ended up doing is finding a player that uh, that plays a, a lot of different ethnic and Renaissance instruments. And I went and bought a nickel harpa, gave it to him and said, learn how to play this. Perfect. <laughs> yeah. And he had, he, he, it was like a dream come true. Like he almost cried. He loves nickel harpa and had always wanted to play one. Um, Did you travel? I did. Across, I did. I, uh, we recorded in Iceland. We recorded oh in uh, London. Um, one of the things that was most amazing, right? Uh, the, the way to it, – it's fun to nerd out about nickel harpa and Hardinger fiddle and stuff like that. But to really immediately take you to the music of a culture, you have to use the voice. Nothing, mm-hmm. nothing moves as quickly to tell an audience you're here mm-hmm. as a voice. Mm-hmm. So I wanted to work with um, – choirs and singers in iceland Mm. and um and 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 the producers at sony especially pete uh, pete scaturo were were really open to this and were pushing this idea which was amazing because i'm saying hey yeah we could record it here in london but like let's go to iceland and do it for real what ended up happening was that we recorded um text that was in old norse Mm. and uh and we found out that the icelandic language is so isolated that an Icelandic speaker can read Old Norse and it pronounce it correctly. Now, what that means, think about it, right? It means if you go to London and you want them to sing an Old Norse, you got to spend 10 minutes at the top of every queue with a language specialist teaching them syllable by syllable how it speaks. Phonetic. I've done this. Yeah. It takes forever. 
you go to Iceland, they can just read it. And we found this choir called Skola Cantorum, uh, which had never recorded on a film score or a game score before. They're like very well known um, in Iceland, sort of this sort of semi-official uh, national choir. Mm-hmm. Um, and and they had this really unique sound. You can hear in the pronunciation the way the vowels and the consonants work. This is not your typical kind of large muscular Latin choir. It 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 had an. There were twenty eight singers. Hmm. It was small. We were like we were talking about with Elmer. Yeah. And I even I raised a flag at the beginning. I was like. Can this be done with 20? I mean, at 28 session singers, I know what that sounds like because it's SATB. It means you've got yep. a handful of people on each part. Yep. But that's their sound. And it was incredible. They just pierced. It was like a, like a, like a scalpel cutting through the mix. You know? Just out of curiosity, I, and forgive me all Icelandic geniuses like Jonesy and, and, and Bjork, <laughs> recording facilities. Well, in Reykjavik, yes, we were big in big studios. It, there was a. It wasn't a big studio. Contemporary gear. Yeah, it was all up to date yep. with, with that stuff. Uh, Bjork had a bunch of posters on the wall, which right I, on. I was starstruck. Good. Uh, um, yeah, they certainly don't have like a like a gigantic scoring stage. Right. And, and again, had I insisted on, oh, we need eighty singers. Well, that, when we we wouldn't have even had a place to put them, yeah. and it wouldn't have been the sound. It was the sound, you know. Um, and uh, so we worked with with them, some other soloists, um, and and the uh, the extreme vocal register that you talked about. Those guys singing the low C, which is nearly an octave. Basically, Robert Kraft. Hello, <laughs> I'm a Viking. Next time, I'm just going to get you. Um, yeah, that was that was sort of my um, that was me sort of pushing the the range of what I thought uh, was possible just to um, capture the character. You know, like that isn't a traditional Icelandic way of singing, but it uh, sure sounds like our main guy. And I think the, my question about the gear was, did you bring sessions there that you overdubbed choirs onto? And Yes. Well, what we, I mean, just to, I love getting technical. Me too. Uh, we recorded uh, orchestra and percussion in London. Yeah. Then we went to Iceland yep. and recorded choirs at the same time that we remoted in additional choirs from Prague and additional choirs from London that I'm monitoring in Iceland. Um, this is God of tech. It is, man. It is, <laughs> it is amazing, of course, what is possible now. But look, it was worth it. It was. And, and it, I think the score benefits from this it's been recorded all over Europe and it, mm. it just has a massive uh, it has a massive sound and especially for a game I mean again just to get a little technical because a game score has to sound better than a film score it sounds sacrilegious right I'm but wondering why here's why any layer inside your mix can be pulled out oh, yeah. and isolated and it's a cue now is there – on a film, If there is there click bleed on your strings? It'll be fine because you're putting the choir on top. No. Every part of it has to be pure enough to stand on its own because we – I wrote I wrote about six hours of music, mm. which is – it is a lot, but the game experience is anywhere from 20 to 40 hours. So there's this spaghettification. It stretches <laughs> out, yeah. you know? Yep. Uh, and, and so you have to make sure every, every layer has to be perfect, has to be, essentially be – its own finished product. Yeah. Um, so, you know, in the um, obviously in the digital era, this is this is possible. You know, to be able to get that. When kind of you control. were scoring it, were you getting asked about doing TV and films 
shows at the same time and you have to actually say I'm on a video game now is there any conflict career wise to I can't take oh man there's this movie I'd love to do but I actually have to deliver God of War or there's a series coming up I'm perfect for it and they want me I can't do it I Did um, it happen that uh that's not in my philosophy, Robert. Oh, nice. That is. Uh, you're that on is, what you're on. I am. I am on what I'm on, and I find producers a, I, take note. You I, have a focused <laughs> composer. If here. I want to do something, I will find a way to do it. Nice. So while I was there, I had a portable rig, yep. and I scored. Um, I scored a Netflix movie. Nice. When I was there, I had support from my team here who yep. were doing additional cues. Mm-hmm. I'm listening to cues. I'm writing the themes, doing the big sequences while I'm conducting God of War. Um, some TV stuff was going. I mean, I just find a way to make it work. Yeah, that's great. You know, because I, I love what I'm doing. I'm inspired by what I'm doing, and it would it would drive me nuts to think that I'd have to pass on a on a show like Walking Dead or a, or or even a little movie like Happy Death Day because it's like, well, I don't I don't have the perfect schedule opening. I mean, I never have that. I'm I'm sure I, there is not a time that I'm not doing like two things. The so when last you do it, day that yeah. That and sometimes a little the, movie comes into it, turns into a big movie. Of course. Happy death day killed Happy, it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Happy death day was a blast. But you it's know? interesting to have this story bookend a day that you turned the phone off to write exactly. a cue for yeah. one show. And to think on that day, if somebody tapped you on the shoulder, say there's going to be a moment mm-hmm. in 15 years where you're going to be traveling to London, Iceland with Prague, Coming in and show over here, you'd say, oh, man, let me just get to the end of today. Totally. Let me tell you, uh, when, I, when I was doing Battlestar Galactica, uh, it was a two-man team. It was me and an engineer. And when I say it was me and an engineer, it means if it wasn't engineering, I did it. So mm. I wrote for five days. I orchestrated for the sixth day. I taped the parts and put them out on the stand. Even if we were at Warner Brothers, I taped them and put them out on the stand. I just, me and my brother would stay up all night, put on a TV show and just tape the parts, you know? Yeah. yeah printed them on my, my printer at well, my house. Audience members, taping the parts does not mean recording as in taping. It means taking <laughs> out scotch, scotch tape taping it. and scotch taping pages. So I got offered a second show. It was called Eureka. It was a lighthearted comedy on the sci-fi channel. And I thought this is beyond impossible this is beyond impossible and it was actually it was elmer's voice in the back of my mind that made me take it he said a thing that in in many ways i I still think about where where he always said getting your first gig is easy it's the second gig that's hard and that was echoing in my mind when when battlestar took off and and my music was being recognized and I I was 25. It was a crazy time, but I had this nagging feeling in the back of my head. Like, yeah, but remember what Elmer said, it's the second gig. This could be it for you, man. Like I was prepared. I could be an assistant again. When if Battlestar doesn't get picked up in season three, I'm, I'm running demo CDs again. Yeah. Now with that said, it, it, it seemed impossible. And so it forced me, Oh, maybe I could get some help with the taping and the orchestrating and, so I go, okay, I'll take on a second show. And like two weeks later, I get a third show. Ooh. Terminator, the Sarah Connor Chronicles on Fox. Oh, yeah. It's Terminator. It's a great show. It's on a major network. I was suddenly like, I was, I was, I was having consternation about two shows like two weeks ago. And that was really, I think, w- where I just fully changed and went like, you know, am I going to get a second chance to write music in the Terminator universe? No. This, you got to do this. Just out of curiosity, was this in a Brad Fidel Scoring universe, or had they moved on in Terminator? So here's what's well. 
yes and no. And it's funny because among all, you know, I've talked a lot about the, the composers that I've connected with and reached out to and bonded with. I, I ended up getting in touch with Brad mm. um, because I, I adored his score for um, the, both the one first and time. two, one and two. Yeah. And uh, I got hired on this show and essentially like the showrunner um, really wanted to make a continuation of Terminator two mm-hmm. uh, stylistically. And, and I think he did those of you listening. I'm sure none of you saw Terminator, the Sarah Connor Chronicles. Go check it out. Lena Headey from Game of Thrones is in it as Sarah oh, wow. Connor. It's it. You can tell it was on Fox in 2009. It, there's some inevitable things that just you had to do at that time. It was before it was ahead of its time. It was before the idea that you can take a dark, gritty uh, sci-fi story and tell a serial drama. That was alien still, even though now it's, it's such a no brainer now. Right. Anyway, um, through legal stuff that's super boring, even though it, it might, it, it comes as a surprise to fans that you can get a license, especially on the Terminator franchise where the rights are just so Byzantine. You can have the characters, you can have the name, you can have the logo and the, the, the creature designs. That doesn't mean you own the music. Hmm. It's all got chopped up. Sure. So they were able to license for the main title, the five notes, bum, 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 bum. That was it. Everything else and, and what's funny is I wanted to just write – I wanted to just take Brad's score and extrapolate it. Um, so I had to – I was forced into doing something that was more my own, but it was very much in that style. I sure. mean and, – and again, talk about things that I knew nothing about. I was not the synth score guy. Mm-hmm. Like that it, – it was – I had just come off of Battlestar, which was all Tycho drums. And so I took a crash course in like analog synths and, and what were the sounds he was using. Um, and I re- – you know, I reached out to him and, and, and we've, we've – um, We've corresponded a lot. I mean, um, it also makes me wonder in 2009 on a Fox network, and this is a deep dive into how focused I was. Yeah. I probably signed your check (laughs) and I have no memory of that show. How long was it? It went on two years, only two years for two years. But it, it debuted after the Super Bowl to astonishing numbers. Right. It was, it was like 18 million people watched the pilot. And then of course, because 18 million people watched the pilot, it just dropped from there. And, uh, and the show was very dark. I mean, it, why it would, in hindsight, is like why Fox would have thought this could. Probably now yeah. it would be on the money. I want to totally. ask a completely tangential question. Nine or ten years later, are you far more fluid with synths? Um, yes, more for sure. I mean, I definitely have, um, it's an unfair question. Do you use sense in a different way as a result? No, no, of no, that it's, and- it, it's reasonable, but I mean, I, I would, um, I would describe, I mean, I'm, I'm just 10 years later. I'm better at everything, Robert. I mean, it's like my percussion sounds better. Huh, my or yeah. my orchestration sounds better. Yeah. My, my understanding of where instruments in the orchestra sound the way I want Ooh, them to is so like, it's, it's, it's the difference between something that sounds good and something that doesn't, you know, I you're mean, like Elmer in the soundstage going, do it again, do it again. Well, you well, learn exactly. Also. How exactly. else do you learn? And, and I've been fortunate to take on projects that have forced me to get better at these different styles. Um, and, uh, and that's a blast, mm-hmm. you know? So, so yeah, I mean, I'm definitely more, um, familiar with synths and sampling and, and, and all that stuff in the same way that I've just gotten better at, uh, at everything else, yeah. you know, but it is funny, you, you know, you think, right? Like the skill that I had when I started Battlestar Galactica, I had not scored anything except student films. 
dozens of them, but that's all I, I my, my qualifications on paper were, were, were none. I mean, they were, they were insane to let me do this. And, 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 and it's the only qualification I had is the, in the obsessive amount of enthusiasm for doing this since <laughs> I was five, uh, which does yep. eventually stack up. Yes. You know, that even the student, the dozens of student films that I had done, I had done with small orchestras. Yes. Uh, the last one I did, um, for director John M. Chu, mm-hmm. um, who just did Crazy Rich Asians this yep. year. Uh, we were college buddies, and I did an, uh, a musical with him that uh, we had a 70-piece orchestra. Will you do Crazy Rich Asians too? <laughs> no, it's all Brian Tyler on that one. <laughs> yeah. It's amazing what he's done. Yeah. But John actually, right, talk about you know uh, Providence, right? Like the first studio movie I ever did was Step Up 3D at Disney oh, for wow. John. Yeah. Had I done a hip hop dancing romantic comedy before? No. That's a really <laughs> you know what I mean? Scary fact of life in the entertainment business is that you get hired for things that you are I was enthusiastic say, about and you have no clue. Once uh, yeah. I think all of us have walked out of the room thinking they definitely just hired the wrong guy by asking <laughs> me to do this gig. If we but if we hit play out. on your iPod right now, what what plays? What is Bear McCreary listening to? Uh there's two categories, right? So I'm I will either listen to um, I, I, I make playlists of scores that inspire me in the style of the thing that I'm working on at the nice. moment. So I need yep. to fill the tanks. I just finished uh, a movie for Mick G yeah. um, for Netflix that uh, called Rim of the World. And yeah. it is absolutely in a 1980s Jerry Goldsmith, John Williams, Dave Grusin style. Perfect. So I've been listening to Indiana Jones, Explorers, The Burbs, Gremlins, uh, Goonies. I mean, and just like just fill nice the tanks, man. Dave Grusin's fill the tanks, mentioned. you know? Yeah. Um, and, uh, and I love that stuff. Yeah. The other side, when I don't, when I want to empty the tanks is all, um, is all metal. I've been listening to system of a down, mm. listen to rage against the machine. Yes. I just listen it just, just to be like, this is this, this, I need to clear my head, <laughs> you That's know? So it, it, it's usually one or the other. Yeah. Um, I, it's funny cause first of all, Rage Against the Machine came up yesterday in a big way. Uh, I've known Tom Morello for a long time. That's and funny. This funny. is news to me. Oh yeah. Tom and I go way back, but it's just, he has actually dabbled in film music and played guitar on. Well, you mentioned those scores. guys that come out of a band. I mean, I'm, I'm yeah. friends with Serge Tonkin from system and, and Serge, he's scoring a lot of stuff. Now. He did a documentary recently mm-hmm. and it made me think actually, when you're talking about Norse music, did you ever get into Scandinavian death metal? Because that you, <laughs> you would think that for God of War, oh, let's get a guy that really understands this kind of blah, blah, blah. totally. No, I but I, I'm glad I, you I love that stuff. Yeah. And in fact, I mean, there when I was there, when I was in Reykjavik, I downloaded a bunch of uh, the of the Icelandic metal bands. I just kind of like Googled. And I just walked around with my earbuds, just that's blasting, amazing, just taking it in. That's what I would do on my spare time. Yeah. And I found this band that uh, I adore called uh, HAM, H-A-M, all capital letters, that are amazing. I mean, just... I metal? Highly, it, yeah. It's like, it's like Icelandic um, death metal. They have two singers, right? This is what makes them cool. I'm going to find these guys. I'm going to work with them. Nice. <laughs> they have two singers, one of whom does... The... <laughs> and the other guy sounds like Pavarotti. This huge, booming vibrato. And it's just like, it's so, and they alternate the way it, to me, it's like, it, it's like, um, that perfect balance where it's like, it's like system. It is. It's very much like system in that way where you get the balance between, you have the aggression of that kind of, um, death metal singer that you need to, to take it to 11, but 
ultimately your ears kind of get worn out without something melodic. And then to have a, like Serge's voice, a voice with such incredible skill that your, your eyebrows raise up the minute yeah. he starts singing. I was going to try, but I, I would just embarrass myself. Now you have to. <laughs> But no, I love that stuff. Yeah. I mean, and, and again, like I, this is what I, I think it's the reason I, I love doing film music is I am so schizophrenic in, in my passions and I love doing something I haven't done before. It's one of the great aspects of film music. In fact, you and I both, I'm sure get told people will submit things and sometimes say, doesn't this sound like movie music to you? <laughs> to which I would always say, uh, what's movie music? Yeah, I mean, you do a polka is movie music, yeah. and uh, an orchestral piece is movie music, and a guy playing on a solo melodica is movie music. Mm -hmm. Movie music is exactly what you said, which is everything. And speaking of solo melodicas, this is a perfect segue to Godzilla, don't you think? Yeah, oh, it's just, we want to get I, to that before we wrap up. I was just going to say, and God of War to Godzilla yeah. is kind of an interesting transition. Kenny and I were speaking about it earlier. When does that start for you, or has it started? I'm done. You're done. In the done. Can. It's, it's been in the, in the can, can for months. It's in the can. And yeah. the movie comes out? May 31st. Oh, wow. Yeah. And so That's the, big. The rumor out there, and I think you've spoken about this, is that you're calling back to the original Godzilla theme. Has that has that not been done? Because I know that, that some of the has, fans were like that, going nuts about it. That theme has never appeared in a American Godzilla film before. Um, so, uh, yeah, you're, you're going to hear some permutations of some familiar themes, uh, in that film. And I think, uh, I think fans are going to be very happy. Let me put it that way. I'm really excited to see how the film plays in 2019 because Godzilla represents a number of things in culture and in history and in the history of warfare for sure you know there's a lot in the history of cinema yeah there's a lot of association with godzilla representing a post-nuclear world mm -hmm. um when it appeared and where it appeared from so how that's interpreted in well let me put it this, this way here, here, here's here, here's what i uh here's what i'm excited about godzilla is directed by michael doherty and um for him I, the way that i eventually realized the way he works. We were making a religious film. Mm. Okay. This is Godzilla means so much to him. I mean, mm. I've seen the movies. He, he has internalized them on like a spiritual level. Mm. So all the decisions he makes are based on his entire like understanding of what the character means, what, what the different, uh, what the other different monsters mean, what these themes mean. It applies to music. It applies to everything. And I found myself um, uh, just sort of trusting him so much because he really does understand this stuff on an even deeper level than I do. But when I say that, it's, it, it, you know, there's something about the American films, especially obviously the 98 one that has struggled to, to translate. Hmm. Uh, and I think the 2014 movie did a really great job of showing that you could do um, something that's more in line with with the Japanese films, mm -hmm. um, but it still really had its foot firmly in like a, an American disaster film. This is just my opinion. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? The way it was constructed. Um, yeah. And Michael has made a monster movie. It, it is cool. it is the real deal. And and. And in a way, it's it's 
it's bonkers. It's so ambitious. It's so unlike other um, other blockbusters. And but I, I think ultimately that's what makes it. Um, that's what made his pitch so compelling. I mean, it's why he's the guy to do it, because he understands why why people have loved this character for so long, and he's been able to translate that into a big blockbuster setting, still preserving um, the core of the character. And I know? love the fact that you said it's a spiritual experience for him because, as we all know, the movies that succeed, they may be on screen like they're telling one story, yeah. but certainly the great ones have a depth. We talked earlier about Beauty and the Beast and Scissor Hands and the mm-hmm. similarity. Well, they're about some very big issues of evil, of some kind of adolescent growth mm-hmm. and a monster that's there, whether it's uh, you know a Freudian kind of thing. But they're these the deep themes, no matter how you tell the stories, and if it's a spiritual theme and a monster is the representation, those are the movies that succeed. So I'm really excited to yeah, see I it. Yeah, I can't if wait. If you're saying that, that is a part of it instead of it's just superficial, it's a big monster that comes and stomps yeah. and stuff. Okay, we've seen that. Yeah, it's it's uh, it's been an, it's, working on that film has been an incredible experience. And uh, I also think that the way I approached it, which was also in line with, with Michael's vision, is that you know I think of Godzilla as one of cinema's great legacies. I think of that theme – in the same way you think of the James Bond theme. I mean, and it comes, it predates it. I mean, you could make the argument, I don't want to be sacrilegious here. Go ahead. This is the oldest piece of film music that has had a continuous legacy that exists. Nice. You know what I mean? Like, James Bond is the next best one. But I can't think of a film series that started in the 50s and ebbing and flowing away and back to it essentially revolved around one theme for 70 years. Uh, and you're bringing it back. And, 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 and the American films have, in embracing these other films, haven't embraced this. So, so I, they were cool with you. They were very cool. Dipping and, I mean, and, and if, I mean, Michael, Michael definitely drove it. I mean, and, and again, it was, a, um, it, it was a complicated matter with Toho. You know, all these rights are very complicated. It's not an easy thing to yeah. get. Um, and, uh, legendary was supportive. Warner brothers was supportive and, and we went for it. And, and, uh, and also, you know, it was important to us that it not just be, um, a fan service cameo. Like if we're going to use a theme, I want it to be a theme. Yeah. You know? Good. So I think fans are going to be happy. Well, you've, so you've done now a huge video game, like one of the biggest, <laughs> you've got your, arguably your biggest film coming out with this big blockbuster. You've done the indie films. TV series, what do you have a preference? I mean, I imagine the workflow is completely different on some of these. I um, I don't. I I, I um, as you might have pieced together, I'm I'm somewhat schizophrenic, and I love doing different things. Your preference is to work. My preference is to work and on on things that are inspiring. Isn't and that and great? at the end of the day, I really don't care what it goes into. I did a short film for a friend of mine over the over the summer. I've, I'm. I, I'm I'm always just looking for opportunities to do something I haven't done before. Um, the workflow is, I mean, uh, that, that's one of the things I've I've I've, I've built up a, a great team here at Sparks and Shadows. I mean, I I trust my team, um, you know, with everything, so that I can just on whatever project get me in a room with the creative person. Let me get my ideas going. I know I need to make that creative decider happy. All the other stuff like delivery. Sometimes somebody asks me like, "Oh, when is when is this mixing?" I'm like, "I don't know." 
My team knows. Yeah. All I know is when my when I'm recording, yeah. like I'm very focused in that way. But that means once you've got a team that you that you trust, it's like the the technical parts of like what makes a game different from a show, different from a movie. Like it, it, it's inconsequential to me. Well, in some ways, you're isolating what is the story and the storytelling is Indeed. what's key. And then the which del- let me underline that's the part I want to do. Yeah. And that's the other what, stuff I don't want to do. It's not, I, I and, and I, you know, I mentioned earlier how I did everything and I was so terrified to let it go. I look back on that in hindsight. I mean, the minute I stopped taping the parts, it wasn't like I was nostalgic. God, I remember those nights I stayed up <laughs> doing the orchestrations myself. I mean, I, I have amazing orchestrators that I work with who understand my, um, my taste. They understand what I want. Um, and, and, um, all my ideas get on paper and, and it's lightning fast. Cause I'm not the one like, putting yeah. it all down on paper. I think these, my, are, these are important steps that I think uh, aspiring composers need, need to do. The final question that I wanted to ask, Sparks and Shadows. Yeah. Can you tell me how the name evolved? Because I love it. I can. Well, I'll tell you, I, I wrote uh, a piece in college called Sparks and Shadows. I oh, did. Nice. Uh, I was, um, as an undergrad, I, I got a piece on, um, at USC does this uh, student, concert with one of one concert every year with the full symphony orchestra's student mm-hmm. uh piece and one year i did this amazing sort of tone poem about william mulholland and the collapse of the saint francis dam it was this mm. piece for mezzo soprano it was just almost like this little mini sort of opera it was very ambitious and um it was my first taste of hearing a symphonic orchestra play my music wow the next year i uh, i said to my teachers like i want to i want to do a I want to do a piece again. I, I, I want this experience. And uh, the teachers are like, look, we almost never have undergrads. It's usually the grad students. And no one would ever do the same undergrad two years in a row. This was now my last year. So it's like, it's not going to happen. I, I mean, unless you like wrote something really short and like amazing. So I went, got it. So I wrote a piece that was like two and a half minutes long, just bright and 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 colorful and flashy and just like just so undeniably fun and cinematic almost just as a way to like prove to them i'm gonna get this two years in a row you know and it was so short that it's like they couldn't help but put it on the program and at the last minute they go what's it called oh i did no name so that's when I, I was trying to think of like, oh, what do I call it? And, I, and I, there were all these sort of like sparkling figures and then ominous low brass. It was very cinematic. Oh, the sparks and shadows. So that was the Fabulous. name of the piece. And then years later, when I, uh, when I, was, uh, I was doing Battlestar and I realized I have, to, I have to form a corporation. Doing it not as a corporation was horrible. And I had no idea there would be any public-facing version of this. So I was just like, ah, I'll just call it that. Oh, whatever. No one will ever see it. And, and so there's like Sparks and Shadows started off as like just a, a thing on a tax form. Now it is a studio. We have a logo. It's a record label. I've put out right on. like 40 albums in the last eight years. I mean, we've got, we've got a bunch coming out this year. Um, and it is also the, as a studio, it is a place where young composers come and work. Yeah. Um, and uh, we we bring on um, twelve interns a year. They're paid. You sure, you want to have this information out there because there was a line already all the way to. <laughs> I think we the met all twelve. Or I know. I'm in here. Well, I do because to me, it it the 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 great thing about having the studio and having it have an identity beyond me, it it is a, it is that it is a place where I hope people can come and get some foothold 
in into the business and yeah. i and so, uh, many of them stick around i mean every most of the people working for me full time were interns at some point mm. but i think i mean look bring it full circle right i i think about what elmer did for me i was going to say that intern for bear for elmer for aaron copeland i i, I feel this incredible need to to pay it back for what what elmer did for Brilliant. me yep. that um i i really want to find that those those other young composers that are ambitious and talented and and don't have a place to go, you know. And well, I think that the message is the place to go is the Rotary Club of Bellingham, yeah. Washington. Exactly, and that short, is where yeah, careers exactly, start. Exactly, and if you're not going to go to the Rotary Club in Bellingham, Washington, I think Sparks and Shadows is your second second best. choice. There yeah. you go. Well, I think that Bear, thanks Amazing. so much for uh, spending Amazing. the time awesome. with us. We yeah. know so interesting. Is there anything you want to push? Uh, upcoming besides Godzilla? Anything <sighs> you got working on? Are you doing any concerts? Uh, there's nothing I can announce yet. Oh. So there's there's so many fun things I want to talk about. Um, never want to jinx them. I know. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, no, I think I think we're good. We've covered a lot of stuff. A lot of stuff. How great. Again, we want to thank Bear McCreary for joining us. Um, be sure, if you like what you're hearing, to go to Apple Podcasts or your favorite